can't tell you how good it is to see y'all. One year ago, y'all remember what we were doing for Easter Sunday? We were back here on the parking lot, church in the parking lot, because the pandemic had us all shut down and had us not knowing what to do. So it is so good to have a house full of people again. Thank you. And if you're joining us online, we're glad to see you. Uh, I just have to say, Charles Zermino is down here on the front. Y'all remember Charles? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Charles was in a motorcycle wreck. Someone pulled out in front of him. He laid down his motorcycle, and then they actually ran over him, physically ran over him. It's the grace of God that he's here with us today on Resurrection Sunday. He is grateful to God. And I just want to mention that because um, we are taking up an offering for them. Um, Charles hadn't been able to work before that. Now he's not able to work for a while. And so anything that's given, if you if you want to give back here at the back, you get an envelope, and you just put um, Charles. That's good enough. We'll get it to him. If you give online like most of our people do, then you just go to benevolence. Anything over the next uh, week to 10 days that comes into benevolence, we're just going to assume you meant it for the Zermino family. And so uh, you can give that way, but it's good to have you, brother. Um, We've been praying for you for a long time, and we really cranked up the prayers when we heard you were in a motorcycle wreck. So it's it's good to have you here. Um, So we've been in this series, John and the Rabbi from Nazareth, and um, one of my favorite books so far, I'm I'm not even finished with this, it's called Cold Case Christianity, I've mentioned it to you before, Uh, the guy who wrote it is is a detective, he's a uh, cold case detective, that's what he does for a living, and he decided to use his skills, his cold case detective skills, to find out if Christianity was true, so go ahead and put that picture up there if you would, this is Jay Warner Wallace, he wrote this book, it is a fantastic book, if you want to know the reasons behind Christianity, why why we can believe, then you need to get this book. I wanted to start off with something he said. So he was an atheist. He was hostile to Christianity. And here's what he says right in the middle of the book. He says, I was lying in bed, staring at the ceiling. I think it may be true, I said to my wife. What may be true, she asked. Christianity. I'm sure she was weary of my growing obsessions. For weeks now, it was all I could do to think about it was all I could think about, and I'd already talked her ears off on several occasions. She knew I was more serious than, about this than I'd ever been in the past, so she patiently tolerated my obsession and constant conversation. The more I look at the Gospels, the more I think they look like real eyewitness accounts, he continued, and the, writ- and, and the writers seemed to have believed what they were writing about. I knew I was standing on the edge of something profound. I started reading the Gospels to learn what Jesus taught about living a good life, and I found out he taught much more about his identity as God and the nature of eternal life. I knew that it would be hard to accept any one dimension of his teaching while rejecting the others. If I had good reasons to believe that the Gospels were reliable eyewitness accounts, I was going to have to deal with the stuff I had always rejected as a skeptic. What about all the miracles that are wedged in there between the remarkable words of Jesus How was I going to separate the miraculous from the remarkable? And why was it that I continued to resist the miraculous elements in the first place? The initial step in my journey toward Christianity was evaluation of the Gospels. I spent weeks and weeks examining the Gospel accounts as I would any eyewitness account in a criminal case. I used many of the tools that I've already described to make a decision that changed my life forever. And then he says, I want to go on to give you some of those tools right now. And he talks about it. One of them is the chain of custody. How we can know that the Bible is true is because the chain of custody is a fantastic discussion. You need to read it. But he goes back to the earliest writings when we think that the scriptures were written. And he follows the chain of custody all the way down um, to the councils that then put into the canon what they had already been accepted for hundreds of years as the Bible. So we believe... Um, not because the Bible says it. It goes back even before there was a written down Bible. There were eyewitnesses. 
Uh, we've looked at seven signs in the book of John, and these signs point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. But the greatest miracle comes at the end of the book, and he doesn't even number it as one of the seven signs. It's the resurrection of Jesus himself. It was this single event that startled the disciples. Why were they startled? Well, they, they didn't expect him to rise from the dead. It was this single event that caused them to go from doubters and skeptics to, to full out, we'll die for the cause of Christ because we saw a dead man walking and it changed our lives and we will never be the same. And, and I think they would tell you that he proved it not beyond a reasonable doubt, but he proved it beyond a, a, any doubt that he rose from the dead. Now, I told you at the beginning of this series that, that I have no doubt that you are smart enough to consider the evidence and come to a reasonable conclusion. But what I worry about is whether you're willing to consider the evidence and come to a reasonable conclusion. And if you know anything about the teaching of Jesus, you know that he is always very patient with, with honest, honest skeptics. That's why we have somebody called Doubting Thomas, because Jesus had patience with him, and he's always patient with honest skeptics. So let's just divine, de, de, define, not divine, let's define this for a second. Doubt is stumbling over a stone we do not understand. Walking along a path and you stumble over something, I didn't see it, I didn't understand it. Willful blindness kicks at the stone and refuses to acknowledge it's there. I didn't trip, there's nothing in my path. That's a willful doubter or willful blindness. See, the resurrection convinced his first century followers that Jesus really was the Messiah. He was the son of God. And the resurrection has been convincing people ever since. Now, let's talk about this for a second. We believe because there was an eyewitness named Matthew. Go ahead and put that first one up there. Matthew was a Jew's Jew, and he wrote for the Jews, and he went and he traced the lineage of Jesus, and he said he goes all the way back to King David. And Matthew has this big deal about showing that Jesus is the son of God. He's the rightful heir to the throne of David. Then we believe because there was a guy named Mark. Mark was the friend of Peter. Mark was not an eyewitness. He hung out with Peter, who was an eyewitness. He wrote down all of Peter's stories. And Mark concluded Peter was an accurate eyewitness. Mark concluded he met other people that had seen Jesus alive. And Mark concluded, and he wrote for Greeks, Gentiles, not Jews. And he said he, want, he wanted them to know that Jesus was the Son of God. And then we believe, because there was um, a man named Luke, he was also a Greek. He was a doctor. Luke is considered one of the greatest historians in the, in the history of the world. At first, they thought his, his, uh, his letter might not be true because he had so many cities, so many names of so many different leaders. They said, we can't prove all of this stuff. In fact, since we can't prove it, he must be making it up. Now, we look back and everything Luke said, every city is where he said it was. Every person who was in, in uh, the Roman government was listed in... in uh, Examples outside the Bible. Now we consider Luke one of the greatest eyewitnesses of, of all of this stuff. He wrote down Paul's uh, stories and followed along with Paul. We believe because he said this in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. Um, I, let's see, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And then look what he says. I too, meaning there are others who decided to write down an orderly account for you, but he's writing it for most excellent Theophilus, a Greek. And why did he write it? So that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught about Jesus. We believe because Peter left us two letters, first and second Peter, and he declared in those letters that Jesus was the son of God. We believe this is my favorite because James, the brother of Jesus, believed he was the son of God. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he's the son of God? Uh-huh. 
James did not believe when Jesus was alive. He did not believe Jesus' teaching. He did not believe Jesus' miracles. James didn't become a believer until Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to James, and it radically changed him. He became the first pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, and he was stoned to death rather than say, Jesus is not my Lord. I saw him rise from the dead. He's my Lord, and they killed him for that belief. We believe because the Apostle Paul, who stepped onto the pages of history as someone who wanted to stomp out Christianity before it ever got started, he saw the risen Savior, and it changed him. And then he spent a whole lot of time with Peter and James and John and and James, the brother of Jesus, and he wrote this stuff down, wrote half of the New Testament. We believe because there were eyewitnesses there. These extraordinarily brave men documented what they saw. They documented what they heard. They documented what other people saw and heard who had seen the resurrection of Jesus. And these documents were collected and protected. And many years later, they were combined into what we now call the Bible. Um, and, and this is where he, he traces this chain of evidence, where it went from, oh, it's just remarkable. You need to read this book. One of the reasons you should believe these eyewitnesses that we've just talked about is because the writers of the Bible do not write themselves into the story as heroes, as most other founders of most other world religions do. All you ever have to do is look at the founder and look at his followers. These people wrote themselves into the story as doubters and skeptics. Why were they doubters and skeptics? Because they expected Jesus to do what all dead people do. What do all dead people do? They stay dead. And they expected that from... See, nobody was outside the tomb on, the, on Easter Sunday morning counting back from 10. 10, 9... Cue the sunrise, eight, seven, angels, six, five, roll back the stone, three, two, one, dun, 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 Jesus. <laughs> nobody was there because nobody expected him to rise from the dead. The reason we can trust these accounts is because it's true. The stone was rolled away, not so, not so Jesus could get out. He was already out. The stone was rolled away so that we could see inside that the tomb is empty. Don't just think there was a doubting Thomas. They all doubted. Why did they doubt? Because the Messiah can't die. But they didn't understand their Old Testament scriptures, which said the Messiah must suffer. He must die. He must be broken. He must be bruised for our iniquities. Let me give you just two reasons why they doubted. Number one, Jesus was radically different from the kind of Messiah they expected. Every Jew expected a political Messiah. They expected a King David to show up with a sword and run off whoever was oppressing them at the time. At this present time, it was the Romans. They thought he would take care of the Romans. Jesus was not that guy, and for that reason, many people rejected him. If you were going to ask, if you were going to ask a Jew of that time who their Messiah would be, it would not be Jesus. Because even when Jesus was before Pilate, the Roman governor... Pilate says to him, are you a king? And Jesus said to him, my kingdom is not of this world. That would have disqualified him. People would have run away from him because they wanted a king of this world to run off the Romans. So they did. Jesus didn't make their top 10 list. He didn't make their top 50. He wasn't on the top 100. Jesus would not have made the list because he didn't fit their idea of what a king, what a Messiah should look like. So nobody predicted Jesus. Number two, the disciples were psychologically incapable of calling any mere man God. Because the greatest commandment, or the greatest greatest, um, blasphemy was idolatry, calling anything other than God, God. Remember, Ten Commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
Second one is you should not make any graven images. You should not bow down to those images. The first four of the Ten Commandments have to do with your relationship with God, and they would never have called a mere man God. They would have to be convinced beyond any doubt that Jesus was the Messiah before they would ever call him the Messiah. There's no way they would stick their necks out and call him Messiah. There's no way they would die for him as the Messiah unless he convinced them. These were practical, ordinary fishermen, hard-hearted tax collectors, practical people who would not have been fooled. And in the end, which is actually the beginning, we know that, but in the end, it was Jesus' words and its works that, his works that forced them to believe he's the Messiah. He's the promised Messiah of God. The miracle of the empty tomb, and then 40 days, over a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared to all kinds of witnesses. One time, there were 500 witnesses at the same place at the same time. It's not a hallucination, because for a hallucination to happen, never does it happen in a group, and it has to be suggested ahead of time. Nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead, so they didn't hallucinate that he was alive. He, they saw him alive. This is, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is no one like our God. Now, in addition to these eyewitnesses I pointed out earlier, is a guy we've been talking about for about for eight weeks now. His name is John. Now, John told us last week when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he tells us that many of the Jewish people put their faith in him. I mean, like, he's been dead four days. Everybody knew it. When he comes back to life, like, Jesus, Son of God, right? So they, they were up on this hill. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you're at the Temple Mount, which is here. There's the Kidron Valley here. It's really awesome. And you look up, and you see the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is not a single mountain. It's a whole mountain range. And so when you're at the Temple Mount, you just see this mountain range, and it's the Mount of Olives. So where Jesus was, he was on top of the Mount of Olives, just about another mile away in the town of Bethany. And when, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, this was Passover. Everybody flooded down to Jerusalem and said, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. John says, many believed, but it was too many. Because the religious leaders said, we can't let him go on. In fact, they said, uh, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They knew Jesus was coming for Passover. They made a plot to kill him. They didn't want to kill him at Passover because they, they were afraid of the people. And so when he comes down and they start waving the palm branches and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, people thought, this is our king. It is time to overthrow Rome. But Jesus had some different plans in mind. And within two days, we think it was on Tuesday of that week, Judas decides, I've had enough of this guy. And he goes to the religious leaders and he says, how much will you give me? I can, I can take you to him when he's away from everyone else. So there won't be a riot. I know his routine. How much will you give me? He betrays his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And then a couple of days later, Jesus celebrates the last Passover with them, with the 12. He washes their feet, which is an incredible story. Then before he institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all say, surely not I, surely not. Even Judas says, surely not I, Lord. He's a great actor. Jesus said, the one I dip the bread into the cup and then I hand it to, that's the one that's going to betray me. He dips it in, he hands it to Judas. John 13, 27 says that immediately when Judas took the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And then in verse 30 it says, he immediately left the meeting and then Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. This is why, well, I'll tell you that in a second. 
On this night, after Judas is gone, after the betrayer is gone, Jesus announced he was establishing a brand new covenant in his blood for believers, not for non-believers. Animal sacrificial system ended at this moment because Jesus said, I am the lamb who takes. And, and in fact, he was killed when he, when he died was the exact moment that in the temple, he's out on the cross on Golgotha in the temple. They are sacrificing the lamb, the Passover lamb. Jesus dies. It is finished. At the, God's a God of details. He said, I'm establishing a new covenant in my blood. Then he announced a brand new movement. Not, not based on the Old Testament law, but based on love. They'd never heard of this before. And in Acts eleven twenty six, it says the Christians, they were first called Christians in Antioch. And it wasn't a nice term. It was you little Jesus Christs. It was a curse word. You're acting just like the leader, to which I'd say, thank you, right? What a compliment. Jesus says people are going to be able to tell you're my follower by your love, your incredible love for one another. And then the next day he goes out and he says, I love you this much. And he stretches out his hands and he dies. There's no one like our God. There's no other man of any other religion who stepped out of heaven for sinful people. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't think you're good enough. You're not good enough. So he took your place. Jesus is arrested that night. He's falsely accused and he goes through six trials. He goes through three Jewish trials and then three Roman trials. And since the, the Jews could not execute him, they take him to Pilate and they convince Pilate to talk to him. Pilate doesn't want to do any, anything to do with it. He, he talks to Jesus. He comes out and he goes, seriously, folks, I can't find anything wrong. This man does not de- deserve to die. And they start saying, crucify, crucify. And Pilate's like, these are religious nut jobs. And so he thinks, if I beat him within an inch of his life, maybe the religious nut jobs will be satisfied. And he was wrong. They brought out a beaten Jesus and they yelled all the louder, crucify, crucify. And they said, if you are a friend of this man, you're no friend of Caesar. And then Pilate says to them, shall I crucify your king? And they say, what no real Jew who followed God would ever say, they say, we have no king but Caesar, crucify. And Pilate turns them over and this is where we pick up the, the scripture in John 19, verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed over him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic means Golgotha. And if you get to go to Israel with us, you'll, we'll go to the place that actually looks like a skull where they probably crucified Jesus. They called it that because it was a place of execution. All these details, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And at this point in the story, John gives us a detail that is totally unnecessary if you're making up the story. He says, Jesus looks at him, John standing there with Mary, Jesus' mother. And Jesus on the cross, he looks at John, he said, John, this is now your mother. Mom, this is now your son. He was saying, take care of my mama. John says, I was there. I heard it. I saw it. I heard when he said, it is finished. And I watched as he bowed his head and he died. And then John says the most unusual thing. He writes down for us, 
The man who saw it, and he's talking about himself, the man who saw it has given testimony, and this testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies. Here's why he's telling us the story, so that you also may believe. It's as if John's reaching out and grabbing us by the shoulders and saying, I was there. I'm telling the truth. Jesus is alive. And he says, I want you to believe. And a lot of people at this point will say, I believe there was a Jesus. I talked to people. I talked to atheists who believed there was a Jesus who lived. And, and I've talked to agnostics who say, well, yeah, he was a good man. If he claimed to be God and he's not God and he knew he wasn't God, that's not a good man. Sorry. He's either nuts or he's lying. But if he's really God, then I believe Jesus existed. I believe he got in trouble with the the Roman authorities. I even believe he was crucified and hung on a cross. And John's going, no, 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 not that stuff. We're not even to the good stuff yet. I want you to believe what's about to happen because I saw it all. Verse 38, later, Joseph of Arimathea, again, details. If you were making up a lie, you don't put details in because they're easily easy to prove false. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. You remember that story. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Why? Because taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance accordance with the Jewish burial customs. He wouldn't throw these details in if it wasn't true. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. He's, He's saying they were in a hurry. They brought 75 pounds. They wrapped him up in strips of linen. Why embalm him? Because they expected him to stay dead. They had to do it quickly because it was almost a Passover. It would be illegal to do anything after dusk until Sunday morning. The sun's about to set, and they had to hurry up. And when they finished, they put him in the tomb. They rolled the stone. It would have been re- easy to roll the stone because you had it uphill. We'll go see a, a tomb. And, and you, it's in this little uh, track, and there's this huge rock stone, and they take the rock out, and it rolls. It's real easy to roll into place. It is not easy to go uphill. They roll it into place, and they left. Everyone left. And this is what Janie and I were talking about Friday night while we were praying can't imagine what the disciples thought. I can't imagine what they said, what they did Friday, Saturday, because I guarantee you they thought we've wasted three years of our lives because messiahs don't die. Messiahs don't get put in a tomb. And John tells us early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene comes running up, knocks on the door. I bet they hadn't slept, but if let's say they slept. She wakes them up. Who is it? It's Mary. They probably thought there was somebody coming to get them. They were hiding for fear of the Jews, right? And we're next. But then they thought, oh, Roman officials, they'll just kick the door down. They're not going to knock. It's safe. Open it. Mary says, the tomb is empty. At this point, nobody had seen Jesus alive. And so she assumes what everybody assumes. We don't know where they've taken his body. So look what happens. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. I'm going, What? At a moment like this, you're talking about, I was faster than Peter. Peter, we think, was the oldest disciple. John, we think, is the youngest disciple. I'm 56 years old. It's not a big deal if you outrun me. My four-year-old grandson can almost outrun me because my knee hurts all the time. 
I outran him. Reached the tomb first. We don't know. John was the longest living of all the disciples. He was the oldest. And maybe because when Mark, we think Mark may have been the first one. Mark didn't do a whole lot of names because people were still alive and it was very dangerous. But by the time John is writing this down, Peter's already been executed in Rome. What's it going to hurt? I'm going to see him in heaven. Maybe it gives me a hard time, but everybody get a laugh at I outran him. People need to know that. And then John steps back and he realizes, okay, if I'm going to give that detail about old man Peter outrunning him, i got to tell the whole story. And he says, I outran him. And the one who outran, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Why did he not go in? It's a tomb. It's dark. It's early. It's scary. He's no hero, and he's not writing himself as a hero. He was just as confused as all the followers of Jesus were on this first Sunday morning. Then look what he, he continues. Then Simon Peter, about time, came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Why? Because it's Simon Peter. He never waits. He always speaks too soon. He always acts too soon. Some of you are in this room. You're Peters. Simon Peters everywhere. And John says, we saw what we never expected to see. He, Peter went in first, he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. This was no crime scene. Tell me what, what grave robbers would stop to unembalm a body before they took it out. It's as if Jesus sat up and said, Hmm, my sight is being impeded. And he takes off the wrapping. That's not Jesus' voice. I'm just making this up. <laughs> my sight is being impeded. I shall unwrap my head. And then it's hard to walk like a mummy. I think I'll take off these grave clothes. <laughs> now, John's being truthful. He says, finally, the other disciple. But he says it again. Who had reached the tomb first. I may have been a coward, but I outran Peter. To which Peter's going, dude, get over it. That guy also went inside. He saw and he did what? Believed. Now, check this out. This is actually a parenthesis in John's letter. They still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. It dawns on, Jesus, on John and Peter. His body's not here. His grave clothes are here. Something must be happening. At some point, Jesus, on that Sunday, Jesus starts appearing to people. He appears to Mary, Mary Magdalene, and then she goes back, I've seen Jesus alive. And they're like, nah, you didn't. And they're hiding alone, and, and Jesus comes, and he, he meets all of the disciples except Thomas. Look what Thomas says. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, that means twin, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Not a cannot believe. I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, boo. No, uh, I, think he, I think he said, Peace be with you because he could have said, boo. And they're like, we need your peace now because you scared us to death. The doors are locked. And I think Jesus goes, 
Hey, Tommy, check out my hands. I don't know. I'm doing the weird voice again. He says, put your, touch the nail scars. See where the spear was pierced in my side. Look what he says. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Stop, the, the literal term is stop being an unbeliever and be a believer. And don't you dare let them give you a nickname like Doubting Thomas because they all doubted. There was Doubting Matthew and Doubting Andrew and Doubting James and Doubting John. They all doubted. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says one of the most incredible things. He says, because you've seen me, you've believed. And then he looks down through history. And he already saw 2021. He already saw Easter Sunday 2021 in Palestine, Texas. And he says this to you and to me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed because of all the eyewitnesses. Blessed are future generations that hear and believe and have not seen. And then John closes his account with this. We've looked at it several times, but he says this in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you, it is very personal. There's no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. They're only children. You have to make a decision. Your parents can't make a decision. Your church can't make a decision. You believe and have life. And I think he said, out of the silence of Friday and Saturday, the roaring lion came out of the tomb on Sunday to say, I will never die again. Death has been defeated. Death is arrested. And for all who believe, your life begins at that moment. And you will never, remember we talked about this. He said, whoever believes in me will never, never die. That's what he told the the sister of Lazarus. In John 3, 18, he says it this way, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So my question for you on this Resurrection Sunday is do you believe? Not here, but here, which results in action. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Some of you have been away from God for a while, and it's, it's time you make a declaration that you're coming back. And I get the COVID thing, but really COVID was just a, something used by the devil to keep us away from church and away from each other and away from God and away from learning, away from life. As if God didn't know that was going to happen. And I'm so grateful that you decided to come out today. It's time to come back to church. It's time to come back to God. And so if you are someone who, who has some type of relationship in the past, but you've been away from God, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you say, God, I want to come back. And I want to come back through the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm sorry I ran away. It's time for me to come home. Just say something like that in your mind. God, it's time for me to come back. Please forgive my sin and welcome me home like you did the prodigal son. Some of you have never, ever stepped across the line of faith. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The way we say it around here is you ask Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins. You admit, I'm a sinner and I'm bound for hell. If hell is real, if heaven is real, I'm not making heaven on my merits. 
You make it on someone else's. That's why Jesus had to leave heaven, because none of us are good enough. There's not a pastor who's ever lived who's good enough. There's not any, any leader of any religion who's ever been good enough except Jesus, because he stepped out of heaven. And the Bible says that, that he was made sin for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So if you've never prayed that, you say, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I need forgiveness of sins. I don't even understand it all, but I ask you to lead the rest of my life. If you pray that prayer today, the Bible says you're adopted into the family of God, and it says that there is a celebration in heaven, a celebration of your spiritual birthday that you would not even imagine going on right now. So I'm just going to say that again. I'm going to give you one more opportunity. God, I know I'm a sinner. I need you to forgive me. And I ask you to lead me and to teach me for the rest of my life. If you pray that prayer, please, please come see me afterwards. Because we need to get you on a path to to help you learn more about God and grow up and mature spiritually. Father, we thank you that the tomb is empty and that no one for 2,000 years has been able to explain it except your followers. We believe, we receive, we've been adopted into your family, God, and we're not done. As long as there's someone within driving distance or watching distance now that we have the internet, we cannot stop telling people about your goodness and your grace. And we pray that you continually give us, for our inheritance at New Life, give us lost people, God, who want to be saved, who want to follow you, who want to have a different life. God, that's what we want to celebrate when we get to heaven. We can't do it without you. So our risen Savior, we praise you today, and we say thank you for stepping out of heaven to save us from our sins. And we dedicate the rest of our day to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.